Blessed are the crustaceans, who apparently breed in giant orgies at the bottom of the sea. Blessed are the witches, whether they live in sea or woods or swamp. Blessed are the hot female chaos dragons, who are super totally real. Blessed are the crafty monkeys we call humans, for it is their lot in life to embrace the void. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Episode 44 of Embrace the Void, the one you'll hopefully share to all your friends because you can't stop cultishly referencing moral luck. I'm your host, Aaron, and with me as always, because he can't free himself from being this way, is GW. How you doing, GWs? Oh, is that a free will stab at me now? Ooh. Oh, I feel so good about that. Right? You're part of the you're part of the game now. Yay! So today we're going to talk about an issue that we've referenced a bunch of times and i think i've probably talked about another podcast some but we've never done an episode specifically on which is the issue of moral luck what it is how it relates to a variety of problems that we've discussed on the show uh so that you know we have a nice easy uh compact um thing for you to point to when people are like what is this random thing you're talking about uh could could i potentially modify what you just said and and add like yes and that it's not just problems, but also potentially privileges. Sure, problems, privileges, yeah, solutions. So I think there's positives and negatives to it, right? To the yes, oh yeah, there's yeah. good luck and bad luck. Yeah, yep. Um, yeah, and I don't think we have any housekeeping for once. Um, the Void merch store seems to be cooking along just fine. There's hats and shirts, um, and you know, I think. Uh, we're getting pretty close to our next patron-only goal, where we would start doing some live Q and A's, and then maybe put out a little bit more merch after that. So, yeah, I guess we just do this thing. Yeah, let's jump in. What's Chang doing? He's getting a refill on his void. So, I guess the best place to start is where we always start, which is trying to define our terms. Yeah, exactly. So, this comes primarily, my, my main source when I talk about moral luck is a paper by Thomas Nagel. It's fairly short. We'll link it in the show notes. It's very readable, and I recommend everybody read it. Uh, it's like seven or eight pages or something. And it's uh, the argument he lays out is that moral luck is this thing where situations where individuals are held morally accountable for something that is beyond their control. So that gets you both the moral part and the luck part. Uh, and what he says is the idea of someone being held morally accountable for something beyond their control is morally problematic. It doesn't fit with how we understand morality. And so it creates a paradox and raises severe questions about free will, moral responsibility, and whether morality can make sense in the real world. Yeah, he... Uh if I'm not mistaken, this is, his paper is called Moral Luck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he he talks a lot about Kant's sort of definition of good or bad luck. Uh, like, maybe we should dig into that a little bit, because that seems to be the source of, of most of his argument. Well, yeah, so he opens with this section about Kant where he's pointing out that, that Kant, even Kant was aware of the potential problem of moral luck, that if moral luck does exist, it would undermine our understanding of morality on a a large scale and so people like kant and many other ethicists have been at pains to try to deny or rectify the existence of moral luck so that morality can persist um so so to sort of summarize that are you saying that he can't even he can't yes right he can't (laughs) even Uh, (laughs) you hate me so much for that joke right now yeah, I got I to gotta go clean off the whiteboard on how many times since a Kant can't joke we've made it. We were, we were up to like maybe five or six episodes, I think. Yeah. Um, so the main issue, the first main thing to understand is why he thinks there's a problem, which is what he calls the control condition. The idea that 
for someone to be held morally responsible, it only makes sense if that person was in control in some reasonable kind of way of the thing that you are holding them responsible for. Yeah. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Like no one is in control of being born, right? We, we've talked about that before, right? When we talked about mm-hmm. antinatalism is that you, you don't get consent for a person to be born. And at the same token, being born, you have no control over that. Right, exactly. So it wouldn't make sense to hold you responsible for the mere fact of being born. And we can think of lots of different sort of easy examples. If I took over your body with a mind control device and made you go on a killing spree, you know, that would uh, it would make no sense, morally speaking, to hold you accountable for what happened because of your body during that time. Right. You get more points, though. Right. Right. Um, So this this is a very, he thinks, plausible intuition that underlies our basic understanding of moral accountability. And then the problem is it seems like nothing is really under your control. So if everything, uh, you know, if, if control is essential for moral accountability and we don't have any of it, then you have a major problem for moral accountability. And he makes this argument by presenting several different kinds of luck in a sort of progressive problematic kind of way that undercuts any attempts to sort of get around one kind of moral luck by presenting another kind. So then what about in cases where you do have control? Like, or, or is he making the argument that the, that control is also something that doesn't really exist? Yes, exactly. He ultimately is going to argue that there's no such thing as free will and that this, he says the space for control shrinks down to an extensionless point. There's no, there's no world, there's no part of the world that is you being under control of things. And this is why we're sort of doing this as a follow-up to our free will debate. Um, this idea of moral luck is heavily tied to how free will and the idea of no free will impacts our, our views of morality in the real world. So what kind of things constitute moral luck, do you think? Right. So you get, he, he divides it into like four categories. They're not necessarily, we don't have to worry too much about some of those categories, but there's a couple, here's the ones we want to sort of work through. We want to, I think, start with uh, the luck of consequences. This is where uh, he basically starts as a way to sort of work from the easiest to work around moral lucks to the most challenging ones. So uh, the example that's most often used for luck of consequences is something like if you and I go driving and let's say we're either distracted or we're drunk or something and you're driving your car and I'm driving my car down the hypothetically the same road at the same time uh, mm-hmm. and one of us gets home safe, but the other one is the unfortunate luck of someone you know being in the road and us not noticing because we're distracted and hitting that person and killing them mm-hmm. um it seems like on paper our behaviors were identical in terms of our levels of negligence but because of luck the consequences worked out differently and then we have the question should we be held to the same level of moral accountability as if you know even if one of us hit the person and the other person didn't, uh, should we uh, should we hold the person who killed the person morally accountable, even though it wasn't under their control uh, that person was in the road at that particular place in time? Well, it's almost like the like that difference between um, attempted murder and actual murder, right? Mm-hmm. The only difference between the two is the person was more competent at it, right? Potentially. Right. Right, which seems ridiculous. So does it seem, so you're saying intuitively to you, you feel like it's it's ridiculous to treat these individuals differently? Yeah. Uh, like if, if, if you're, surmi- like if we were to assume all things being equal, that like the circumstances of the person having the drinks, the circumstances of the person getting drunk, the circumstances of, their vehicle, why they drove, like if everything being equal and the only absolute difference is one person happened to hit someone one and the other person didn't, uh, then yeah, there should be no reason why the two should be treated differently in the, in the moral luck sense. 
So would your intuition then be that we should punish both individuals equally severely or not punish? Like, like, should we take the person who didn't kill someone and punish them at the level of the person who did kill someone or vice versa? Well, I'm going to have a problem with that just in general, just in terms of the punishment, right? Because mm -hmm. as I know, I think you and I both sort of agree with the whole um, or just uh, restorative restorative justice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think punishment on its face, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think if you were to, if a cop was able to pull both of these people over before an event took place, I would agree. Yes. The punishment, whatever that means should be the same. Huh. Um, I don't, uh, and I and that's question. to some yeah. extent the intuition behind very severe drunk driving laws, as far as I understand it. Yeah. That like, if we just treat every potential um, negligent homicide um, person as if they've already committed it effectively, that like mm -hmm. you will reduce the number of people who drive drunk. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah. and I think this is where, like why I was making the distinction of all things being equal with the, with the exception of that one thing, I think in a more practical sense, with our justice system, this is where I think mandatory minimums have done a disservice because before a judge was able to sort of weigh in all of the sort of mitigating circumstances to figure out like, well, this, you know, this person was only driving drunk because they happened to also like have their friend who was pat like passed out and he was driving to the hospital because it was the only option or I don't know, some stupid mm -hmm. thing like that. Right. Um, well, yeah, mitigating circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I guess where I'm going with this is it's hard. It's hard to figure out the ought in all of this in a practical sense, but talking about it in the theoretical is a lot easier. Yeah, it's very difficult, I think, to to say how we balance this, right? Because fundamentally it seems like ought implies can. That's mm -hmm. that's where we keep coming back to that. It doesn't make sense to hold someone accountable for something that they couldn't have done otherwise, for example. Um, and yet the, there's this nagging suspicion that no one could have ever done otherwise. So uh, usually what happens is when you start with the moral luck of how things turned out, um, people will say, well, what you can do then is focus in on the intention, what the person chose to do in the sense of, Get, having those drinks and getting in the car, that part was under their control, surely, right? That would be sort of usually the next most common move in the argument. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when you are confronted with, uh, first, like you're saying, the luck of circumstances, uh, the idea that some people just have the bad luck of being put in really, really terrible circumstances, and as a result, they engage in uh, worse behavior, right? You have... The luck of not being born in Germany in the 1930s and being forced to decide what to do in that particular situation. Um, so that one, though, is is less problematic, I think, uh, raises more, less concerns than the moral luck of constitution. The idea of the moral luck of what makes you who you are, all of the kinds of psychological determinism that we've talked about in various different formats on the show that are definitely it seems like beyond your control and arise long before you have any say in any of the matters and determine how you respond to every single circumstance that is the kind of moral luck it seems like that is really really intractable and really difficult for anyone to deny the existence of and, and it seems like that is the root of your argument, which I completely agree with, on why we have sympathy for terrible people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, specifically incels, for example. Um, yep. Uh, uh, and I should quantify that more as like incels who do horrible things. Uh, it's It seems that like there are groups of people who are born into situations that obviously they had no control over and, uh, you know, grew up in a white supremacist household let's say right it's i guess then like at what point at what point do we hold someone responsible for their actions like like in the in in the sense of thinking about this we can sort of have everything go back to well nothing absolutely nothing is under your control 
and therefore none of it's your fault and therefore none of it nothing matters right but at some point we have to we know just from experience holding people accountable for their actions does have positive outcomes or the potential of holding someone uh, accountable for their actions does have positive outcomes so i guess mm-hmm. what's that line does that make any sense yeah and it's a tricky line to walk that's certainly so there are a couple of different responses right once you hit rock bottom with moral luck and and if you you know you you see the problem of of everything being traceable back to something that is beyond your control one way or another the choices are usually some form of uh either either trying to reject that i mean there are individuals who will claim like we were talking about with the last show for a kind of very radical libertarian free will where they believe that there is an entity within the self that is under control and and is an unmoved mover kind of entity i think it's wildly implausible but that is one way to try to address the problem yeah and Um, when they hit rock bottom they wouldn't hit rock bottom if the rock was conscious and can move out of the way right Right, of course, exactly. Good callback. Good job. I did it. <laughs> You're so pretty. Um, so usually, what people will try to do is say that some forms of moral luck exist, and we can make up various kinds of piecemeal workarounds for how to maintain, like you're saying, various forms of moral accountability and and talk of morality, even though uh, at the very ground level we might recognize that there's no such thing. Uh, so what you get, first of all, is um, arguments of the the epistemic kind, which we saw a little bit of in that free will episode as well. The idea that because of my and your and everyone's limited epistemic access to consequences and how things are going to turn out, you can sidestep primarily things like the luck of consequences and the luck of circumstances um, and say that, uh, you know, we can hold people accountable for what they sort of reasonably think is going to happen based on what they are trying to accomplish and what they're, you know, what they understand of the world. It makes me want to have the conversation I sort of had at the very end of our last episode, which was like, where could this potentially lead us? Right? Like Mm -hmm. what in your mind, let's just assume for the moment that, everyone adopts this idea that okay we don't have free will everything is about moral luck what where where does that lead our society like mm-hmm. in a pragmatic sense what are the ways that you think things would change the way you know our punishment system works the way that we talk to each other the way that we resolve conflict like sort of all of that yeah and we i think we touched on it a little last with that with the free will one and i think that is the really, really important question. When I do ethics, I want it to always be with a with a focus on application, right? This debate over free will is useless if it doesn't improve quality of life for real human beings. So the kinds of things that I tend to point to as the upshots in society and human beings having to do with moral luck are you get a you get an immediate shift towards uh, humility and compassion and grace. So uh, the kind of acceptance stuff that we talked about from our very earliest episodes comes along and you start to recognize the parts of you and the parts of others that are beyond their control and you start to hold it against them a little less. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't still try to get them to change who they are because, again, change is still possible on this model. It's just change is the result of forces pushing on other forces it's not someone radically deciding to change of their own volition yeah i think when we talked about that uh, that acceptance i used the example of how i don't really get road rage i don't get mad when people cut me off or mm-hmm. whatever because i always think well i don't know what you know maybe they didn't actually see me right and it was a just a simple mistake or maybe their kid is crying in the back seat or something or you know Maybe their favorite Justin Bieber song is playing and they're just in the zone. They're yeah, in I flow. A, I have a guy who I argue with online a lot and he's got a foot thing. I don't know if I've, have I talked about this on here before. I don't think so. Right. He's got a foot thing and I'm not going to get into the details of it, but it's a, you know, a disability that, that he acquired as a result of work. And it, it sort of has come in my mind to represent a more archetypal fact of the matter that everybody has a foot thing. 
everybody's got some sort of thing that you're not probably fully aware of that determines who they are has radically changed how they see the world in various ways i think that leads to um moral luck it's you know these are all these different kinds of moral luck and so it, it's a lot like you know again it's a lot like christianity like I, i'll be honest the there's not that you know there's lots of problems with christianity but some of the things they get right are ideas like judgment is reserved for god interpreted in the sense that you really don't know what's going on inside of other people who are having a really, really bad time. And sympathy and humility can go a really long way towards helping them and towards helping yourself when you are having to deal with their pain. Yeah, if um, only actual Christians believed that shit. Right, yeah. Some of them do. Uh, you know, Some I'm going yeah. to defend my Christian friends, right? Some of them do. Yeah, um, no, I know. I'm being I a know. dick. I know you're a dick. It's fine. You're, you're pretty, but you're a dick. Yep. Um... So within the like justice system, right? And I, I, something else I want to point out here, another good response to the moral luck issue that nuances the discussion some is a reminder that moral accountability and legal accountability don't have to be the same thing, just like certain laws aren't necessarily moral. Um, we might choose to prosecute laws in one kind of way as a functional method for our society but at the same time have a different view in terms of our levels of compassion towards the individuals who are being punished. So is there uh, a correlation between like the conversations we've had with the Me Too movement about the difference between the legal definition of sexual assault and what we ethically define as sexual assault as like two separate things? Yeah, sort of. It's the same, a similar idea, but instead of it being about, um, uh, a difference in um accountabilities it's 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 sort of slightly different it's it's a little bit more about like um you know we can we can say legally look i've got to put you in jail for x amount of time because of the thing that you did but i can also recognize that you didn't really have control over this and i'm going to try to help you be better and i'm not going to demonize you in the process so i'm not going to make sort of the very retributive kinds of moral judgments towards you. Um, yeah. So it makes me think like if I was going to take the devil's advocate position here, mm. what's to prevent people from doing things and to just claim that they don't have control, right? You know, the like clearly abusing the system in some way and doing something shitty, like, you know, cutting in front of you, like you're waiting in line for a coffee or a bagel or whatever. Someone cuts in front of you and says, oh, I'm sorry, I don't, moral luck, I, I don't have any control over this. The short answer, I think, is habit, right? You just habituate people to be better people. The long answer is there's no method for perfectly solving this problem. There will always be free riders, no matter what vision of morality, ethics, and society you enforce upon them. I have, I have yet to find one that seems to perfectly resolve the problem that human beings will some of them will be habituated to be free riders the best you can do is um recognize the problem recognize that human beings are the sorts of individuals who can be habituated in different kinds of ways and figure out the best possible ways to minimize via systems via you know whatever to uh, minimize the opportunities for them to be free riders and maximize the incentives for them not to be free riders Sure. So in your mind, what is mm -hmm. what is damaging about free will as an idea? Right. Because I think that's like mm -hmm. one of the things that Jody said, which kind of stuck with me is the, you know, what potentially could be lost by saying by saying that we don't have free will, what is potentially lost or what could be potentially harmful from from doing that? Right. So what is potentially lost, I think, is a robust feeling of um, pride or uh, a robust ability to feel judgment towards others, which is something that we enjoy doing. So, yeah, judging that, people is a lot of fun. It is. It feels good. You are you are evolved and hardwired to do it because it is an effective mechanism within our group to reinforce the desired kinds of behavior. Um, One of my favorite why. things to do is to sit outside of like, you know, drinking 
a drink and sitting outside when it's nice and sunny out and watching people walk by and I see someone wearing a romper and I just judge the shit out of them. <laughs> it just feels so good. Like, I don't say anything. I don't do anything. But internally, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah. So so really, <laughs> like, no, true. I mean, like, yeah, ego, like the ego lives in the wor- in the illusion of free will, in the illusion of having control and in the illusion of getting to judge others who had control and failed to use it properly. Uh, so that's that's a potential thing that's lost. Now, I think, you know, I and others will say that's not a, a huge thing to lose, right? But th- that is, I think, why a lot of people struggle to get fully on board with this. And I don't mean that as a personal attack against them. I just think that if we're being honest, that is one of the forces at play here. And it's one that even believing this stuff, you know, it creeps back in all the time. You're always sort of prone to want to make those judgments and you always have to be kind of catching yourself and and breathing through it i think um but i think what's gained is you also lose a sense of guilt and shame that are problematic and not not 100 i think you know i always have had a really i beat myself up a lot when i do things wrong and that hasn't gone away honestly too much but like it makes it a little bit more manageable and it certainly makes it easier to not hang on to anger at other people when they do things wrong. And I think that's a practical reward. Yeah, I I don't know. I guess my entire life I have always done the best I can to put myself in other people's shoes as I interact with them. Um, I think mm-hmm. like when I grew up, when I was really little, my neighborhood is very diverse, right? I think I mentioned before, like my best friend when I was like my first friend ever was this young black kid who lived next door to me. We were the same age. I was jealous because he had a Sega Genesis and I didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. But we had like, there was that family. There was like a, a little bit of like every population in our, our neighborhood and we all played together. And it, uh, I saw things that they experienced that I probably wouldn't have seen if I had grown up in a uh, less homogenous sort of environment yeah that's definitely a kind of moral luck the things that you are habituated to in your youth play a major role in who you end up being as a person so another another way that we might try to salvage because i think i think first of all it's important to recognize that if we, we don't want to lose morality so if it were true that moral luck really kills off all of morality that would be a really big problem so we want to make sure that isn't the case. So the kinds of things that I've been talking about with um, conventional forms of uh, using morality while still recognizing that individuals are not under, not not having, not really have control, uh, those things I think are valuable. I think also uh, one other interesting thought that I've seen is um, the virtue of taking responsibility even when no one is responsible. It's a kind of virtue similar to generosity where you are going above and beyond what morality or justice demands but that you can as an individual choose to do that if you want to in the sense you know the the deflated sense of choose to do so right if you're so lucky as to be habituated into taking that kind of responsibility that could be a valuable and praiseworthy thing could you expand upon that a little bit more i'm not I understand what you're saying, but I don't understand the sort of positive part of what you're saying. So so the positive part would be uh, it would hopefully counterbalance the concern that some people have that if people don't believe in free will, they would stop taking responsibility for anything. They would become sort of lazy or inert or something like that. Um, could you, that we could might, you give me an example, maybe? Of what? Which one? Uh, of... Uh, you know, someone taking responsibility uh, in this sense. Yeah, it would be, it would just be the same kind of taking responsibility that we do all of the time, but doing it with, with also knowing that you are not ultimately responsible. You know, um, if you weren't using it in the moral luck sense, it might be like, think of how we view leaders who take responsibility when someone who is working for them does something wrong, even though it wasn't, really their mistake right they still are willing to own own the mistake that was made it seems it seems somewhat supererogatory in a sense it goes above and beyond 
it would right. be something like that with regard to moral luck. I see. That makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Like it would it be similar to like uh, a government taking responsibility for mistakes that uh, uh, that government has made long before those people were alive? Like, I don't know, mm-hmm. slavery, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Right. A, a, a willingness in a more robust sense to continue to take responsibility even though we all know that all of these things are ultimately beyond our control. And so I should say one objection that opponents of mine will raise is likely this all starts to sound very disingenuous. That is a reasonable concern. I, I don't think that it, it ultimately cashes out that way. I think there there is a sense in which we uh, we can still maintain these structures in the most sympathetic and humane way possible while not going above and beyond in cruel kinds of ways for the sake of uh, punishing individuals that we think are free. Um, But it does tend to create this sort of two truths kind of discussion where on one level we are saying people are going to be held responsible and on another level we're saying really no one is responsible and that might seem problematic or disingenuous. Yeah, so the... I guess what what do you imagine if there is any difference between like if two people get into a car accident, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's in a world where everyone believes that no one has free will, right? What's to stop them from trying to make the argument that it was neither of their faults and there were all these circumstances because they didn't have the free will to avoid the accident or something? I, I, I think, right, first of all, you could have... So, so I mean, you could have a system that caters to this by addressing, uh, by, by allocating luck differently, by allocating, um, you know, negative consequences across insurances, for example. We have things like um, no-fault insurance, right? If you get in an accident with someone else, both of your insurances, I think, will usually pay out or something uh, that you can do those kinds of systems that so that all of the the consequences don't get lumped on one person or the other um i think you can also uh continue to habituate people to take pleasure in the doing of good things and the avoiding of bad things and that uh, a hedonistic kind of principle can go a pretty long way with our kind of biology for continuing to get you know the reason most of us don't go out and do heroin and commit a bunch of murders is because we don't want to. It's not because it's not legal, right? Yeah. So one would imagine that with those very similar kinds of preferential habituations from a society, you're not going to suddenly get a massive uptick in people doing horrible things and then claiming they had no responsibility, especially if you show that, you know, if you, if you do something horrible and then claim you have no free will, we're going to agree with you. You have no free will. We're still going to imprison you. It's going to be in a rehabilitative kind of system, but it's still going to be a system that isolates you and controls you long enough to figure out what's going on and fix it. Yeah. Everyone knows that happens on purge day, right? You're not supposed to do that when it's not purge day. Right. I just love that Rick and Morty bit where he's like, so how did y'all, how did y'all start purging? Like, you're like a little opposed to it at first, then you got into it. Like <laughs> it's a purge, Morty. <laughs> uh, so what else? What else do we need to cover on this one? Um, other, I guess maybe benefits? maybe we should talk about the. We talk mostly negative stuff. Should we talk about positive parts of moral luck in terms of like privilege, like like I sort of oh yeah to before. Sure. Um, yeah. So yeah. So the flip side of like feeling less guilty when one does something wrong is that moral luck can also be positive that a lot of us have what we would call moral luck in the form of privilege that privilege is really just a kind of moral luck a way of talking about you know the luck of being born in the right location having the right access to the right kinds of resources having certain traits that are um valued more heavily in your society or something these are all kinds of uh moral luck and there is just mountains and mountains of evidence that keep coming out that show that this kind of moral luck drives your situation far more than 
anything that even remotely looks like something under your control, right? Even in the most generous model of saying what's under your control, what we find is that how wealthy you end up being is pretty directly determined by how wealthy your parents are, for example. Like, and nobody has control over that. All right. It, it sort of reminds me also of, like, I, it makes me think of how it's a bit relative based on culture and time period, right? I'm mm-hmm. sort of going back to the conversation we have with your dad where we talked about um, uh, Trump and his narcissism and how mm-hmm. a different culture in a different period in time, narcissism might be actually a positive moral luck thing to have within that society. Um, yep. And now it is, uh, uh, although sometimes people get ahead from it, it is not a sort of positive thing because we've noticed what it is and and society, the society sort of looks down on it, but mm-hmm. although outcomes may be different. Yeah, to me, weirdly enough, um, the example that comes to mind for me is from Sin City. Remember that comic? Love movie it. Movie series, right? Love it. The, right, the guy who... He says in a different in a different world, in a different timeline, he would have been a, a hero. He would they would have thrown people at him like. Right. Um, but because he's in the modern world, he's he's screwed. And and like that transfers over to the incels, right? It transfers over to all of these men today who feel like because of the vicissitudes of fate, they are uh, they have been raised oh, and, and biologically structured in one way. And are now set up to fail because the system doesn't value those kinds of things the right way anymore. That was a good word there. Vicissitudes? I don't even know what that means, but it sounded super smart. That's um, that's Hamlet, I think. (laughs) The slings and arrows, outrageous fortune. Oh, right, right, right. He says vicissitudes of fate somewhere in there. (laughs) Good stuff. It's a good word. It's a fun word. Yeah, like... It's just so hard once, and and this is why some people like Kant, and I think um, a lot of the modern anti-SJW folks are so hell-bent on denying the existence of any privilege, any inequality, any systemic anything, is because once that thing gets its foot in the door, all of the moral judgments start to become really problematic and difficult. Like, I, I think you can still have morality. First of all, one final point that before we run out of time here, moral claims are completely untouched by this argument in the sense of a moral claim like it is wrong to torture innocent people for fun. Right. That claim is true and it remains 100 percent true whether or not we have the capacity to act based on that moral claim. Does That make sense. Yeah. No, that's a really good distinction to make. Yeah. yeah. So moral accountability is in a lot of trouble potentially, but the the fundamental moral claims themselves don't cause unnecessary suffering, respect people's autonomy. Now, the autonomy thing is interesting, right? How do you still make sense of autonomy in a world that no one has any kind of free will? And it's again, it's another situation where you have to kind of create a conventional account of autonomy like you do with coercion, where... You know, you can sort of know it when you see it, and it has to do with your will being compelled by the right factors in the right way, kind of stuff. Do you think? Do you think it might threaten the whole idea of consciousness? And by that, by that, mm-hmm. I mean, if we don't have free will, if we don't have any choice, then like, how is how is it then not just we're a bunch of meat puppets that are just happen to be doing things? So I think it threatens, it doesn't threaten the experience of phenomenal states or sentience, right? You're, you could still be experiencing that slideshow in your head, even if you don't have free will and it's all driven by factors beyond your control. What you might be concerned about is that those conscious states are no longer causally effective in this model. That could be one kind of concern, right? That that slideshow is completely separate from all the factors that are driving your actual behavior. But that might not be your concern because you might think, oh, well, uh, they could be causally effective, but they're just not me, which I think is the right way to parse that kind of question. Uh, So then I think the concern becomes, um, is there a robust sense of the self anywhere in that consciousness? And I think mm-hmm. you're right. That that goes under the knife in this view. So along with free will falls uh, the sense of the conscious entity as a 
uh, robustly free thinking being. This conversation and uh, me binge watching Star Trek recently makes me think of. I wonder. I wonder if <laughs> this is totally off topic, but I wonder if the Borg is the outcome of the Buddhist sort of methodology or or framework. Oh yeah, because Everyone. it's complete loss of self, right? Yeah. So there. I mean, there is one. There is one interesting question about Buddhism and like enlightenment and the no self view whether it ultimately leads to being a philosophical zombie, basically, if that's sort of the goal of Buddhism. Yeah. And um, the thing that threatens them is individuality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. To, to be individual is to be differentiated, which is to have a separation between self and other, which is the, ba- the basis of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads right. to suffering. It all, it all ties together. It's all just one big flat circle um so let's see i think we've we've hit most of the things yeah i sort of want to end it with like the last sentence of um uh nagel's uh a thing on moral luck which he says we see how everything we do belongs to a world that we have not created yeah that's a good one uh a few other quotes that i love from just parsing a little from memory here uh he says Something about the idea of moral moral accountability relies on it not being the case that uh, actions are events and uh, agents are things, but the reality is actions are clearly events and agents are clearly things, and mm-hmm. so there's no there's no room for this thing we call free will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. All right. So uh, I think that's pretty solid 101. If anybody has any questions on moral luck and where we go from there, uh, we'll certainly keep bringing on people who are doing this applied moral luck kind of stuff, because if you haven't noticed, it's kind of the moral of our show. It's pretty much what we do all the time. We're pretty lucky. We're, we're We're pretty lucky that we get to do this, morally speaking. I hope that luck becomes a lady tonight. Luck be a lady tonight. Is that what you think you are? A hero? Saved the world, didn't I? Once. Talk to me after you've done it a couple more times. So our hero of the week, uh, I guess, I don't even know how to introduce this. Uh, The hero of the week is, it's kind of Yanni, but it's kind of Laurel. I don't know. What do do you hear the first time you heard it? I haven't actually listened to it, to be honest. Damn it, Aaron. <laughs> Were you not lucky enough to hear it? No, I'm I'm a bad philosopher. So like when I hear about this example of everyone having different experiences of reality, I'm like after the after the dress thing, I just don't care. I'm just like, yeah, all of your experiences of reality are filtered. Sorry. <laughs> like enjoy yeah. enjoy your your inability to all unify your experiences. Here's what's really interesting about this. So this is totally in my wheelhouse. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I can give a whole account of like what's happening perceptually, what's happening scientifically. Yeah, do the science thing. I love it. All right. So it also ties into our moral luck a little bit as well, which is why I really love it. So when I, the first time I heard it, I heard Yanni and then I was listening on repeat and then I could hear Laurel. Um, and as a sound designer, I do this actually all the time. Scientifically, what's happening is Yanni is in a higher frequency register and Laurel is in a lower frequency register. So depending on your hearing, which is a physical thing that you don't control, and depending on your perception of how you perceive sound, uh, specifically in that moment, like depending on what else you've been exposed to, um, you may hear one or the other. You actually can control it as well. Right. So much like with the dress thing where how the dress looks is actually somewhat in large part determined by the lighting on it and and how your brain well is impacted is that is it similar in that kind of the dress thing was much more about uh the manipulation of the image itself right and and with this it is literally perception because it's both sounds happening simultaneous um but if you if you've lost a lot of um if you have physically lost a lot of your ability to hear higher frequencies, you will only hear Laurel and you will have a, a much harder time trying to hear Yanni. I see. Uh, uh, if you have, um, uh, so I, this also goes into the way that we perceive sound. We don't perceive sound linearly. 
right? If I play, it, did you ever do this when you were are in we, school? Are we he- hecta- heptomorphs? Heptopods? Are, are we giant squiddies? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Are we sound squiddies? <laughs> a little bit. Cool. Uh, I think we've arrived there, though. Um, <laughs> so did you ever do this when you were in school where you had to like go into the library and you put on headphones and they were going to make some beep sounds and anytime you heard a beep, you had to like click a button or something? Yes. So what they're doing is they play um, a sine wave, which is a pure tone, at a certain frequency, and then they play it softer and softer and softer, and you click every time you hear it, and then when you can't hear it anymore, you stop clicking, and that becomes your threshold of hearing for that frequency. Uh huh. If I play a lower frequency, let's say 100 hertz at a determined level, and I play the same, uh, like 1,000 hertz at the same loudness, you will perceive the 1000 hertz to be louder significantly than the 100 hertz. Mm-hmm. Right? So just like our eyesight, we actually don't see color linearly either. Um, so like uh, um, green is actually really sensitive to us and yellow like around that spectrum. So you didn't mean like linear in time. You meant like linear on the yeah, how linear. much emphasis we put on different parts of the spectrum. Linear in terms of the acoustics of it, right? The, the physics of exactly how much sound pressure level, SPL is what it's called. Uh-huh. If you play both of those at the same and you're exposed to them so that they reach you with the same exact acoustic pressure, you will perceive them to be different loudnesses. Interesting. And there's this whole thing called Fletcher Munson, and these two guys that did this test, uh, which is what all these hearing tests are based off of, um, which show this very bizarrely drawn line. Um, uh-huh. And so uh, people are are much more sensitive around 2000 hertz, which is where consonants are. And if you have decent hearing, then Laurel seems louder and that's what you'll perceive. And the lower self will become masked, essentially. And if your middle to higher frequencies are really dampened, then the lower frequencies will seem to you to be louder and that's what you'll perceive. Mm-hmm. So do you get a, a pretty large age gap, do you imagine, in what people hear here? Depend Because you lose that higher register as you get older, right? Potentially, but it also, like I said before, it's conditional as well. Like, mm-hmm. if York's, like if anyone's ever been to like a concert or a club or something that was really loud, and afterwards you have that ringing in your ear, um, that's partially actually a frequency in your hearing that's dying, and it's sort of screaming at you. Um, uh, it's which very is, hoity. Yeah, which is hilarious. Um, but also you'll notice that you still have trouble hearing other people, not just because of the ringing, but your ears have compressed uh, and you need louder sound in order to be able to be exposed to it. Um, part of it has to do with your exposure just before hearing it. Like if you were to listen to a lot of um, really high frequency stuff and then listen to the Yanni Laurel, you'll probably have an easier time hearing the Laurel. Interesting. But if if anyone wants to figure out how they can force themselves to perceive one or the other, right, obviously biologic, you know, physiologically dependent, uh, listen to a piece of music like, you know, electronic dance music or something and focus just on the kick drum and, and try to listen only to the kick drum as it's happening and then try to focus on something else. And, and by doing that, what you're doing, which is what sound designers do, is you're doing focused listening, where you can pick out certain things that you want to listen to. And if you can do that, then you can go back to the Yanni Laurel thing and choose to listen to one or focus on one or the other. I love how quickly you turned to Jason Mendoza there for a second. Who? The guy from Good Place. Oh. <laughs> she drops the beat in my heart. <laughs> These are the extent of my DJ references. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm into it. Dangerously uncool. I'm into it. It took me a minute. (laughs) Like, it's been a while since I've watched Good Place because there have been any new episodes in a long time. Oh, yeah, I know. I need to get down with that season three. Uh, Cool. So, yeah, I I really like this as a hero of the week because it reminds us that... um, there is no one true experience of reality. There's all of our myriad different experiences of reality that are highly complex and driven by all those factors beyond our control. It makes me want to ask you a follow-up question, which is okay. if a tree, and I'm, I'm not joking. Mm-hmm. I'm actually no, asking no. you if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Right. Like my first question is, does it, what how are we defining the word sound here? Yeah. 
<laughs> like is is sound a success term like is it a, a term for something that has been experienced or is it uh a term for a a physical substrate that exists even if it is not interacting with a receptor that's the exact question yeah i uh moo i guess <laughs> right. i actually in in my when I teach sound design, I ask this question to the group. And when I do a workshop on sound design, I ask the question because it's, it's you restated the question in philosophy terms, but it's essentially like, if you say, yes, it does, that's physics, that's acoustics. You can measure it. Right. Uh, and if you say no, that's psychoacoustics, that's perception. Uh, and which both of those are completely different bodies of knowledge and can be talked about in different ways. Mm -hmm. I like Bart Simpson's answer. Of course it does. <laughs> but does it? Yeah, listen. Yeah. What's the sound of one hand clapping? <laughs> yeah. No, listen. I listen, Lisa. This is why this is why they kicked me out of the real philosophers club. That's why I'm out here doing this fringe philosophy. You ask them what's the sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> it's like it's just this is why I don't publish. Uh I see. Uh, I guess that's uh, pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you all very much for joining us. Obviously, you didn't have any say in the matter any more than we did, but uh, hopefully you will be compelled to join us next week. We compel you to listen to us again. The power of void compels you. Does it? Is it compelling? I don't feel very compelled right now. <laughs> is it, What's is that it from? Compelling? What's that from? <laughs> it's uh, from This is the End. Oh, of course. <laughs> Is it very compelling? I'm not feeling very compelled right now. It's such a good movie. No, it's not, but it's a good moment. <laughs> we would like to thank our new patrons, The Godless Revolution and General Contact Unit Problem Child. We would also like to thank our top patrons, Jesse Rubinowitz, Dave Maslick, Abe, Peasants with Pitchforks and Glow Sticks, Corey Johnston, host of the Brainstorm podcast and the Hardcore Skeptic, CampQuest.org, CampQuest.org, CampQuest.org. Mr. Nobody, and Chad Trait. If you would like to become a patron, find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. As always, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. <laughs>